Now, a lot of these studies are looking at Asian women and Asian cultures because there is a lot of soy consumed in those cultures. I can tell you that the American Institute for Cancer Research and the American Cancer Association both say that soy is safe to consume for women in all stages of life. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm Maya Acosta, and I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. Dr. Rizwan Bukhari is a vascular surgeon who has been in practice for over 25 years. He specializes in the treatment of blood vessels and is particularly passionate about limb salvage work and preventing amputations. He has also adopted a nutrition-focused approach to treating his patients, which led him to learn more about soy. As part of our breast cancer awareness conversations, I asked Dr. Riz to speak about common soy myths. He will explain phytoestrogens, how our bodies use phytoestrogens, and what the data says about the use of soy products throughout a woman's life. As always, you can find the full bio and details of our conversation at the website, healthylifestylesolutions.org. Let's meet Dr. Riz. Welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions podcast. I'm your host, Maya Acosta. Today, I have a special guest. He actually started the podcast with me. So if you go all the way back to episode number one, you'll see Dr. Rizwan Bukhari was my co-host. So welcome, Dr. Riz. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, nice to be on the show again. Thank you for making this happen because I think it's probably been over a year since you've been on the show. I don't remember. Yes, definitely. We are at a, probably episode 234 or something like that. And for my listeners, we are in the same room in my home studio. And this is the first time that we record together this way with the setup. So, you know, there might be a little bit of technical problems in terms of adjusting the volume, but I will say that we've come a long way compared to the first episode. Absolutely. I remember the first episode was recorded in a hotel room with a single mic, I think. No, we did two mics, but there was something wrong with the recorder. And so when you listen to it, you can hear me say on the right, ear and listen to you. It's the left ear or something like that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I just watched it recently because I'm putting together a video for the listeners and for anybody who wants to view it on YouTube. I'm putting together four years of content. I'm not putting everything, not 230 episodes, but I'm going to highlight some things. And I thought, well, this is actually really cool. You're joining me right now to address Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And you're joining me at the same time that I'm celebrating four years of doing this. So good timing. Yep. All right. So before we talk about breast cancer, and it is this episode is airing in November, we had difficulties, plus we were traveling a lot. But I thought the topic of breast cancer should be a year round topic. And also the concerns that people have around soy, I thought we could also talk about. But before we do all that, I thought I may have listeners that are not familiar with you because I've been doing a lot more since the last time you joined me. So let's start with who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been in practice? Where are you in practice? And what does a vascular surgeon do? Okay. All right. Uh, So for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Rizwan Bukhari. I'm a vascular surgeon and I practice in the Dallas area uh, in Texas. And I've been in practice for 
pretty much 25 years now. I started in 1998, so, you know, 24 years. Um, I've been a surgeon since 1991 uh, when I started my training, but uh, I did general surgery and then I specialized in vascular surgery and I started my vascular surgery practice in 1998. So uh, what else can I tell you? Thank you for sharing about that. So can you tell us what a vascular surgeon is? Because we have even friends today that still call you cardiologists. They believe you're a cardiologist. So I thought we could talk about, you know, what is a vascular surgeon. The average person may not have a vascular surgeon that they have to go to, but everybody knows about heart disease. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can understand uh, that it's not a well-known specialty. There's uh, not a lot of vascular surgeons out there. I think there's probably a little over 3,000 board-certified vascular surgeons in the entire country. Um, And it is fairly highly specialized. We very specifically work on the blood vessels of the body. And uh, it's an evolving specialty uh, early on and when it was first starting and wasn't highly recognized, it was just a surgical specialty. Mm. And so people would uh, clean out blood vessels or do bypasses on blood vessels. And it has evolved throughout the years and especially in the last couple of decades uh, has become uh, a specialty where uh, it's the surgical treatment of blood vessel disorders. It's also the minimally invasive treatment of blood vessel disorders, so using stents or balloon angioplasties or other or other modalities to clean out blood vessels. And then it's also uh, the medical therapy or medical treatment for uh, blood vessels. And I'll, you know, to be very specific, um, I treat all of the blood vessels in the body or a vascular surgeon treats all of the blood vessels in the body, except for those in the heart uh, and in the brain. But it's still the same disease process. When we talk about heart disease or we call, or we talk about atherosclerosis, uh, we're talking about uh, plaque buildup in the arteries. Now, granted, there are some other areas in the specialties that treat other kind of things Mm -hmm. or diseases related to blood vessels. But when we're talking about that, you know, uh, the majority of the disease that we treat, both as cardiologists uh, and as vascular surgeons, uh, is atherosclerosis, which is buildup of plaque inside arteries uh, or causing blockages. And then the uh, the bad effects of those blockages. And then also I'll add that there's also someone called the cardiac surgeon or heart surgeon who does the heart bypass operations on the heart. I kind of do, if you think about what a cardiologist and a heart surgeon do for the heart, I do both roles for the blood vessels in the body. I'm both the medical doctor uh, and doing minimally invasive therapies. And I'm also the surgeon who does the bypasses and clean out and things like that. That's pretty cool. I'm familiar with a lot of what you do because I hear the stories and I've often said, oh, if you could only share that story here um, on the podcast so that people can get a better idea of what you do. So you are, I think uh, we both have said it, you're like the plumber in the body. You go in and you clear the, you remove plaque in certain problematic areas, maybe some some areas that are, uh, where the blockages exist. But you not only work and treat, you know, atherosclerosis, but then you also help individuals who have accidents or having some sort of emergency. So it's not always related to lifestyle in the sense of what they eat or lack of exercise. But if someone had um, an accident somewhere, you treat that. Yeah. I mean, so you can think in a very simplistic term, uh, and I joke with my patients, I'm going to go clean out your artery. But it's not as simple as that. I mean, of course, it's much more complex. But uh, in a very simplistic manner, uh, the blood vessels of the body are the pipes or the tubes that carry blood both from the heart 
and to all the areas of the body, and then back from those areas of the body back to the heart. And the heart itself, again, in a very simplistic manner, is the pump that is functioning that creates the circulation throughout the tubes of the body. So that is a pretty straight, you know, simplistic way of looking at it. Uh, And then, yeah, I mean, I treat uh, both the chronic illnesses that we treat today uh, of the arteries, but then also, of course, I treat uh, the acute injuries. If someone has a car accident and injures an artery or a gunshot wound to an artery or, you know, or a stab wound. Uh, you know, so I have stories about all of those things that I probably shared with you at some point or another. So yeah, there's uh, both acute injuries to arteries, and then there's the other uh, kind of traditional chronic right. stuff. Yeah, I remember there was one story that you shared about a young man who was a carpenter. Uh, he was working on location, and he accidentally nailed. I think put a nail in the palm of his hand. I don't remember what area. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Well, it was close. It wasn't the palm. It was his wrist. And okay. he had uh, injured his radial artery. It's the one that we all know, and we feel the pulse in the wrist. He had injured the radial artery, and I wow. had to uh, deal with that. So what did you do? Just so that my listeners can have an idea of your specialty. Like, did you just sew the, did you repair the hand? Was he able to get full use of it or what happened? Well, I, you know, so I actually, when I went into an explored, I also had to assess whether he had uh, not just an injury to the artery, but also the artery uh, and the vein, and then also a neurologic assessment of his function as well. Uh, Because a lot of times the arteries, nerves, and veins all travel together. And, you know, so there are different ways to treat a radial artery injury. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes uh, you go in and you can just tie off the artery uh, and stop the bleeding if necessary. Sometimes you have to go in and repair it. A lot depends on what that repair uh, will do to the function of the hand as far as its blood supply. Wow. In that particular case, I was able to repair the artery uh, instead of having to tie it off. Wow. This is incredible. And also just one other thing about what you do is you work very hard in saving limbs, especially for people who are diabetic or start to, you know, Mm -hmm. to have blockages in their leg. Tell us a little bit about that, because I know that's important to you. We've had this conversation before that once a patient loses a leg, quality of life drops even more because now they're probably wheelchair bound. Yeah, very much so. A loss of limb is a tremendous impact on a person's uh, lifestyle, on their psyche. Uh, It affects uh, so much of, uh, you know, a person's life. And it's pretty much a downward trajectory on most people's lives when that occurs. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, you know, I do a lot of leg work. I joke, there's a joke that I'm a leg man. And uh, so the vascular involves all the blood vessels in the body. So uh, my training involves treating carotid arteries, to both uh, treat strokes and pr- try to prevent strokes. I also treat the aortic, uh, the aorta, um, either whether it's blockages or aneurysms of the aorta. I also it's uh, treat the lower extremity or leg arteries. And my practice has. Uh, I also do a lot of dialysis work where I create the shunts and the fistulas, and in order for people to have dialysis. So those are kind of the major things that that I do. But over the years, I have subspecialized within my specialty to where the vast majority of the work I do is what's called limb salvage work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I deal the vast majority of the time with people who have problems with the circulation of their legs and very often circulation issues which are so advanced that their limb is at risk. And so the, my practice is what's called a limb salvage practice. I'm in the business of amputation prevention. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so diabetics, to further elaborate on that, diabetics are particularly at risk because diabetics develop you know, issues with wounds all the time as secondary to the nature of their diabetes. But if you add on top of diabetes, you add blockages in the arteries, we're talking about 
a very, very serious situation here. So diabetics are at particularly high risk for amputations, and they are the subset of the population that has the most amputations. Yeah. And it's so hard to know that, you know, you have worked with my mother and I often talk about my mom on the show and how important it is for her to have this lifestyle, the plant-based lifestyle so that she could, you know, not lose a limb because she had, you know, significant blockages on one of her legs. In fact, treating my patients was one of the main reasons I got into nutrition uh, as a modality to assess and treat my patients, mm-hmm. uh, more in addition to me fixing their advanced problems. Mm-hmm. I began to understand how much nutrition uh, impacted our health. And uh, over the years, I started to look at the scientific evidence and the best practices uh, and evidence-based medicine and began to realize that our nutrition has such a, a tremendous impact on these diseases and risk factors that I treat. Most of my patients are diabetic and have high blood pressure. They have high cholesterol. They have high fats. And all of these things are directly impacted by our dietary choices. And so I have adopted the approach of using the science behind nutrition and evidence-based nutrition in order to help my patients make better choices. They're so lucky that you have that knowledge. You know, I was recently speaking with Dr. Sarah Kassam, and I was, um, she's in Canada, the episode right before this one. And I said to her that every time a physician joins this lifestyle, I feel like a star lights up in the sky. And that's because you're giving us more tools so that we can take control of our own health. And that's what we'll be talking about today. We're going to talk about nutrition, more specifically soy and how it's beneficial. We'll address some of the myths because, you know, many people are afraid of soy, not just women. Men are also told that they can grow man boobs. That's some of the things that we hear. So should we get started on the topic? Sure. Absolutely. So I thought I would do like these uh, rapid fire questions and you can do yes or no. And just to kind of get started, because, you know, I'm assuming that a lot of people may have these kind of questions about soy. So you can answer yes or no. But and that's um, it. Or can I talk some more? <laughs> we're going to elaborate, but feel okay. free to say more if you want. Just a couple of questions. So uh, soy products, more specifically tofu, but just soy products increase estrogen levels. True or false? That is False. I already said this one, but soy products increase or can actually contribute to men growing boobs. That is false. Yes. Soy products are excellent for women going through menopause. That is true. Okay. And let's see what other things. I can't think of any others. (laughs) I actually didn't prepare for those. But no, this is a great way to get started. So as I was saying, we just completed the conversation in October for the month of October Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And the reason that I wanted you to talk about soy is you've addressed it before when we've done the walk with the doc. And I know for another summit, you spoke about soy. And actually, I guess if you wanted to talk about your general experience as a general surgeon, and you know, if you've had experience seeing breast cancer patients or anything like that, if you'd like to share that first before we start. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, I do have some opinions and knowledge and information on soy. And actually, my opinions are based on science. So it's not, I don't think they're opinions. I think they are recommendations. Mm -hmm. And because I focus a lot on nutrition in our health, obviously, soy is going to come up as a part of that. And I have learned a lot about it. And so I do have recommendations about soy. And I think probably a better understanding of soy than most physicians do. So I feel like I can make some very good recommendations. My experience with breast disease and in particular breast cancer is related to my 
uh, experience as a surgeon. And I did uh, five years of general surgery training. Uh, one of the areas of focus is breast cancer and breast surgery. So I do have a fair amount of uh, training in that area. Now, I did not continue that training or I did not continue that practice as I developed into vascular surgeon. I continued and focused on vascular surgery and gave up breast surgery. Uh, and so I don't do that currently, but I do have uh, some background in breast surgery. Yeah, well, I think this is great. And you gave a talk and then you and I sort of debated on the approach that we should take. Should you just redo the talk and record it or should we have a conversation? And I thought it'd be great to have this conversation so that we can share it on social media and on the podcast and on the YouTube video and all of that. But let's start with some of the fears, I guess. And I did, I do have some notes here um, just because there's so much to talk about. But I thought we could start with probably addressing some of the myths that like what I said earlier, why are people afraid of soy? What do we know about soy in terms of the benefits? And how can we encourage people to feel like it's okay to eat soy? <laughs> well, I think that the, you know, just at its very root, the basic fears about soy come from this belief uh, that people think that soy equals estrogen. And therefore, uh, soy consumption therefore is equal to estrogen consumption. And then people may get the complications related to estrogen consumption that they are afraid of. Things like breast cancer, breast cancer recurrence, decreased fertility, early age of men are, and in men, feminization. Yes. So those are the things that people are afraid of from eating soy because they think soy equals estrogen. And so I think that the distinction that I like to really clarify is that soy does not equal estrogen. In fact, it's the exact opposite. And I think two reasons this misconception exists. Number one, the compound in soy that people are afraid of is something called a phytoestrogen. And just because it has that name estrogen in it, somehow people think, okay, because it's got that term in it, it must be an estrogen or have estrogen-like. And so soy has something called isoflavones, which are phytonutrients. And of course, all plant-based products have phytonutrients, and these are very, very healthy for us. And in particular, soy has these isoflavones, which are also in many other plant-based foods. And in particular, the isoflavones that people are we're talking about today is phytoestrogens. And the reason they're called phytoestrogens is because they have some uh, similar basic uh, structural components that look like estrogens, but then they have more to it. So they're a plant estrogen. And I'll address that more uh, as to what its effects in the body are. But the other reason I think that people fear soy is because early on in some of the research that was being done on soy, there was uh, some papers in particular by one particular author that talked about the estrogens or phytoestrogens in soy, and they made a leap of faith saying that those phytoestrogens were equivalent to estrogens. And then that kind of got hold uh, in the popular culture. And so everyone was walking around saying, don't eat soy because it has estrogen in it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that caught some, it caught interest. And I think uh, it got some momentum, I guess is the way to put it. And so it, it was something that has kind of stuck in our popular culture for many decades. And this research has subsequently been debunked. And, but just because something's debunked, the original idea may not have faded away. And so that still exists out there. Now, what I will say is that there has been a tremendous amount of research done on soy. It's one of the most common 
plant-based products out there in many cultures and in for many reasons. And so it, it's not strange to understand that there's a lot of research done it. My understanding is that there's about 2,000 papers, scientific papers annually on soy. And I used to say that there's over 40,000 papers on soy that exist out there, scientific mm -hmm. papers. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's a lot of information. And so the more recent data uh, and the preponderance of the data shows that soy, not only is soy not harmful to us, it's very highly likely that soy is beneficial mm. uh, for us. And we can talk about, you know, how it's beneficial to us. Sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. Two reasons why people are afraid of consuming soy is just really not understanding the mechanism. And you are going to go in detail about that. But phytoestrogen, phyto meaning that it comes, it's derived from the plant, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So it's a plant estrogen, sort of, or mimics estrogen. And then the other one is just, I'm sorry, were you going to? I wouldn't say it mimics estrogen. I would say it has some chemical and structural similarities to estrogen. Okay. Good. Thank you for correcting me. So that's one. And then the other one is just the media. I feel like the media intentionally targets soy as thinking that that's the main food that you and I as vegans eat. But I would say in the years that we have been vegan, we don't consume that much soy. I think we probably consume a reasonable amount of soy. But, you know, I don't know that the media is out to particularly demonize soy, but the media always loves things that are controversial, things mm -hmm. that will stir stuff up things that'll get people's attention. Yes. Uh, and certainly it does do that. And especially if, you know, uh, soy is out there and if the media says something like soy is bad for you, suddenly it gets a lot of people's attention. And a lot of people will read those articles. Yeah. yeah. And when we start to move into discussing about the benefits of the isoflavones, the phytoestrogen found in tofu, I also um, want to address flax seeds because mm -hmm. flax seeds are just as beneficial. And I didn't know until I started doing some reading why it makes sense that Dr. Michael Gregor recommends flax seeds as part of his daily dozen. Mm -hmm. And it could be for this reason as well. I mean, flax seeds have so many benefits, but I'm hoping that you can talk about yeah. that as well. Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Gregor, when he had to come up with a few foods that would be, you know, superfoods or the ones that you need to kind of focus on on a daily basis, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that he picked flax seeds, just like he picked blueberries. And, you know, it's just like it is, in my opinion, a superfood and it has a lot of beneficial effects. Okay. So again, let's not forget to talk about that. So, uh, you know, let me talk about what soy does in the body at a biologic or molecular level. And then, you know, what are the studies about soy? Because I think those are two important things to really understand if you want to really grasp the fact that soy is not only not harmful for you, but that it's beneficial. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, phytoestrogens is what, when you, when you eat soy, that's what comes into the body is a phytoestrogen. And so we have two different estrogen receptors in the body. There's an estrogen A receptor and there's an estrogen B receptor. And estrogen itself has a high affinity for the A receptor. The phytoestrogens that we get from soy actually have a fairly low affinity for the A receptor and a very high affinity for the B receptor. So then what about these receptors and what do they do? So the A receptor, okay, so I guess let's take a step back. What are receptors? Receptors are like keyholes or buttons. And so when something binds to them, or it actually activates whatever that receptor is responsible for. So when something binds to the A receptor, the estrogen A receptor in the body, mm -hmm. it actually has very strong pro-estrogen-like uh, effects. And so that's why when high estrogen might turn on growth uh, factors might turn on cancers. It turns on 
estrogen things in feminization. So anything that's binding in a high levels to the A receptor causes those traditional estrogen-like effects that many people talk about. Are you saying that this, and it's the alpha receptor? You know, it's yeah. the alpha and the beta receptor or the A receptor and the B receptor. Okay. Yeah. Is that alpha receptor what receives our estrogen in our body? Yeah. So estrogen binds strongly to the alpha or A receptor. Okay. Yes. And then now phytoestrogens bind multiple thousand fold higher affinity for the beta or B receptor. Okay. Now that beta or B receptor has relative anti-estrogen like effects in the body. It actually kind of blocks the estrogen effects or turns off the estrogen effects. So you can see that a phytoestrogen doesn't have the pro-estrogen effects because it doesn't bind strongly to the A receptor. And it has anti-estrogen effects because it binds to the B receptor, which turns on the anti-estrogen pathways. And so therefore, it's thought to be protective in many respects against those estrogen positive type of problems. Mm. Okay. And particular breast cancer, feminization, early menarche. Okay. And then in men, there's a thought that it can be protective against prostate cancer. Oh, wow. And the way that you're describing it, it almost sounds like if we have this A receptor and B receptor that we should be consuming phytoestrogens, it sounds like. If we're not, then it's just sitting there waiting. So yes, I think we should be. Mm -hmm. And I make a personal recommendation that we should be consuming two to three servings of soy products a day. Uh, And so now let's kind of just use that as a segue into the literature. Okay. Again, like I said, there's a lot of literature out there. And when I say literature, I mean scientific literature. I'm not talking about some article on Yahoo that just, you know, is talking about soy, but I'm talking about the scientific literature. And then there's a lot of, you know, and not all scientific literature is great, but there are lots of good peer-reviewed articles out there. And there's lots of great meta-analyses out there that have shown positive benefits of soy. And so in particular, I like to quote women who get more soy. And it's you have to look at population studies and epidemiologic studies in order to get these results because it's very hard to design uh, you know, randomized control trials and placebo trials to show any benefits because you have to do these for years and have tight controls. So these are both mostly based off of epidemiologic and population control studies. But the studies show that women who consume more soy as opposed to no soy, and, and typically that means two or more servings a day, have a 30% less risk of developing breast cancer over time. And a lot of these studies are looking look at Asian women and Asian cultures because there is a lot of soy consumed in those cultures. I can tell you that the American Institute for Cancer Research and the American Cancer Association both say that soy is safe to consume for women in all mm-hmm. stages of life. And then there's also studies that show that soy consumption in women who have had breast cancer, those women who consume the highest levels of soy have about a 30% less risk of cancer recurrence and have a statistically significant less risk of all-cause mortality as compared to women who do not consume soy. All-cause mortality. So you're saying that soy not only is protective against recurrence, of breast cancer, but it also protects our heart and other things? Well, you know, so when you say all-cause mortality, then there probably is some sort of general protective effect or some processes in the body that we will talk about this, but soy is also helps lower cholesterol. And then we were going to talk about, uh, there's also some thoughts that it decreases blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're talking about scientific studies here that show that soy consumption is 
decreases breast cancer incidence, and is protective against recurrence of breast cancer in women who have had breast cancer. There's another study I like to talk about, and that looked at the Far East Asian cultures and looked at soy consumption in teen and preteen girls. And so girls who consumed two or more servings of soy a day, as compared to those who didn't, throughout their preteen and teen years, had a 30% less risk of developing breast cancer over the course of their lifetime. Wow! So there's something about during those developmental years, when the breast tissue is being developed, that exposure to the soy and most likely the phytoestrogens reduces the risk of breast cancer over the course of a lifetime. That's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, what is happening when people develop cancer? We are actually all developing abnormal cells and cancers in our body all the time. And so it's up to our body then to defend and protect against those. It's uh, to recognize them and weed them out. So we have an immune system and a defense system that's always fighting cancer. And so I think two things are happening when we consume soy. Number one is we're consuming uh, the phytoestrogens, which are protective against the development of the breast cancer tumors. But we're also people who consume more soy tend to, who are more plant-based or plant-forward in their nutrition, eat less of the harmful foods that promote cancer development. Okay. Yes. And as a matter of fact, well, I'm glad you said that because I'm thinking as you were describing the studies that have been done with younger teen and preteen Asian girls and their diet, I'm thinking about the standard American diet, the everyday diet that people eat when they're on the run, when they're very busy. A lot of people, and I talk, talk about this often, but a lot of people eat fast food. When are they going to get soy in their diet if they're constantly eating out? When you go to restaurants, soy, for example, tofu is not always an option in a restaurant. So what you're saying is we have to be very deliberate, not only understanding the science that this is beneficial for us, for women. And you know that on the podcast, I like to emphasize and support women in health. So when we're talking about health, we will have to be more intentional about bringing in tofu and edamame into our diet. I agree completely. I think we have to be intentional about everything about our diet. In mm -hmm. today's day and age, it's too easy to eat unhealthy way. And we do live in a very, very much a fast food culture. Uh, it's a lifestyle and a culture that's developed. And so it's just very common for all of us mm -hmm. uh, to eat on the run and not pay attention to making great choices about our food choices because we're always in a hurry. And we haven't focused on food as we should, realizing how important it is to our overall health. Yeah. And I think we need to get back to that. So as a part of that, I think that, you know, we need to be intentional in our food choices and, and I, you know, so add soy to our diet. I talk about, I think this is a good reason, a good way to talk about, you know, what are the things a woman can do to reduce that breast cancer risk? I'm very much a proponent of trying to detect and treat breast cancer or in cancers in general. Mm -hmm. You know, cancers are going to develop. Our healthcare system is getting better and better at detecting and treating cancers in general. But what I also think we should focus on, and this mm -hmm. is really where I, is wouldn't everybody rather not get cancer? So wouldn't it be more important than to try, if we know how to prevent it, shouldn't we also focus then on trying to prevent cancers from occurring and then we can help people on both sides? Mm -hmm. And so there are things that you can do to prevent breast cancer. And you've probably talked about this on some of your other episodes that mm -hmm. you did mm -hmm. uh, during Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October. I don't think it hurts to talk about it again. And I'm a supporter of a Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicines approach. And they talk about four things that you can do. Yes. We can expound upon them if we want. One, of course, is to choose plant-based foods or have a, a plant-centric diet. 
because a plant-based diet is healthier for you. It, it's full of phytonutrients and antioxidants. It's mm-hmm. got it's high fiber. It's low fat. It's low cholesterol. All of those things are protective against cancer. Another thing is to exercise regularly. Third thing is to limit alcohol because we know that alcohol increases estrogen puts a woman at higher risk for breast cancer, but alcohol itself is also a cancer-causing agent. It causes multiple cancers, and it's also known to have, there's also known to be increased breast cancer with increasing alcohol intake. And then the last thing is to maintain a healthy weight. We know that people who are obese are at higher risk uh, for breast cancer. Uh, My thought on that, and I think kind of the prevailing attitude on that, is that people with more weight have higher adipose and fat tissue, and fat tissue is well known to produce estrogen. And therefore, people have higher estrogen exposure and therefore more breast cancer. Mm. So those are the kind of the four things that I support from the PCRM or Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And then I also add don't smoke because there's just it's just a no brainer. Tobacco is very bad for us. It's not just bad for your lungs. It's not just bad for uh, your heart and cardiovascular disease, but it causes multiple cancers. Mm. Yes. Thank you. I like those four tips, especially the one on just incorporating more whole plant based foods. And I'm glad that you're clarifying some of these concerns. You know, it's such a shame that we have to keep talking about this. But since you've already given us the evidence behind that, you've given us some science and talked about studies that show that not only are soap products not harmful, but they're beneficial for our health. I'm wondering also if we continue this conversation by talking about the concern that people have about genetically modified soy. So that's one. And then the other one is the isolated soy protein, which believe it or not, I did not know what that was. And I remember someone asked us once about isolated soy protein. And I said, what's that? Where do you find it? Because I don't buy products that are isolated soy protein. That would be found in processed food more than anything. Well, isolated soy protein by definition is a highly processed food. Yeah. So, you know, to kind of just address this person you're talking about, I think that The people who continue to avoid soy or are afraid of soy have heard something out there in the media, Mm -hmm. but haven't done their research. Because clearly, if you've done your research, you know that soy is not only not bad for you, but it's it's better for you. Again, what woman who has had breast cancer would not want to reduce her risk of breast cancer recurrence by 30% by doing something as simple as having two servings of soy a day. Mm -hmm. That's not some, you know, it's not tamoxifen. It's not some estrogen blocker that you have to take uh, that has other effects on your body. It's not some big anti-cancer chemotherapy treatment. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's something as simple as eating edamame and a glass of soy milk or edamame and a serving of tofu every day, and you now have almost nearly halved your risk of having recurrent breast mm-hmm. cancer. That's what the data shows, the science shows. And so I just think that the people who say that have not uh, researched it, then they're just basing it on some anecdotal story or just something they heard. And that's a shame. Right. Yeah. That's one. And then they're probably <clears throat> also think that when we're talking about soy, we're talking about highly processed soy products that are turned into burgers or whatever that may be. And then, of course, I would say, yeah, try to minimize even the vegan processed foods because they're still going to have a lot of chemicals and additives that we don't want to consume. Well, and I wish that were the case. If that were the case, they would say, yeah, I stay away from highly processed soy products. No, they just say, I don't eat soy. That's right. So it can be in anything. Yeah, I think they're still afraid of it because, yeah, I mean, of course, we advocate for the things that are closest to their natural state. You know, Mm -hmm. in fact, when we talk about eating soy products. We talk about, let's eat edamame, the soybean, Mm -hmm. or 
tofu, which is minimally processed, or soy milk, which is minimally processed, okay, or tempeh. Okay. So those are the kind of things that I recommend. I'm not talking about the highly processed soy foods. You know, if there's soy in an impossible burger, I don't think that's the best way to get your soy. Mm. Okay. Sorry, impossible burger. You were also then genetically, uh, yeah, I was you, mentioning you, you genetically. Mentioned G, you mentioned GMOs. Now, GMOs are something that I've considered. I don't know the right answer. I think that uh, what I tend to tell people is that I avoid and don't recommend GMOs because we don't know what we don't know. I'm in favor of avoiding those at this mm -hmm. point, you know, in my evolution of thought. Something that I think is very interesting is that there are people who don't make a distinction when they're eating uh, meat. They're very anti-GMO and they'll say, I don't want any uh, GMO products, but then they're eating meat. The vast majority of uh, livestock out there today are fed GMO <laughs> products. And so they don't even make that connection that uh, what they're eating is based on a genetically modified product. And so that's, you know, let alone the fact that they don't make the connection that the protein they're getting from their meat actually came from plants anyways. You know, there's a lot of disconnect out there uh, in our world. Yeah, I'm glad you say that. Many times we say <laughs> when you're going to purchase your soy, I say soy, but I'm really thinking tofu, but there's also organic version. So you also asked about soy protein isolate. And uh, so, as you know, I'm not so much speaking to you as to our audience, mm -hmm. we advocate for a whole food plant-based lifestyle, and that involves no processing or minimally processed foods. So we are not advocates for processed foods. And I'll give you an example of a highly processed food, oil. doesn't matter where you take it from, whether it's mm -hmm. an olive or an avocado or corn. Oil is a highly processed food. You've stripped out all of the fiber, the phytonutrients, and everything else, and all you're left with is an oil or the fat from that product. Mm -hmm. So similarly, soy protein isolate is stripping everything from the soy or the soybean and only leaving the protein behind. You've taken out the fiber, you've taken out all of the other products, and all you're left with is a protein. And that's, a, in my opinion, and I don't think it's in everybody's opinion, that's a highly processed uh, food. I'm not a big fan of approaching food from that standpoint. Right. So that topic has come up and that's why we're talking about it. It's come up as to, well, what's wrong with that? It's not all that bad. And it wasn't until I had, it was sometime earlier this year, I guess, a guest came on to talk about soy as well and address the isolate and said that the process of removing, extracting the protein, just like you described, puts the protein, puts the product at a kind of carcinogenic, if I'm saying it right, state because of some things that form like hexane. And I don't even know what that is. And one other thing, do you know what I'm talking about? I think those are products that are used in the processing of the soy in order to create soy protein isolate. And so it could be that there's contaminants left in it. Uh, and therefore, you know, that's why we talk about all these processed foods and preserved foods that you buy off the shelf. They have lots of chemicals in them and they have preservatives and they have things in them that you can't pronounce or you don't even know what they are. Yeah. And so why would you want to be putting those in your body? That's right. So again, I'm not trying to denigrate or denounce soy itself. I'm just talking about we don't promote eating a highly processed soy food. Right. Well, let me say this one. I thought because I thought it'd be interesting for people to know uh, the process of extracting the soy protein. So just like Dr. Riss had already said, is what remains when you take soybeans and strip all the sugar, the fiber, and all the natural vitamins and minerals from them, what is left is the protein. So 
The process of doing all of this is called acid washing. Soybeans get soaked in acid or alcohol to remove the sugar and dietary fiber. Then what's left gets dehydrated, which ultimately makes a dry powder and it looks like an I don't know, Olay protein powder. I don't know what that is. The extraction process often leaves behind residue from chemicals and metals like hexane and aluminum. And it also contains phytates, also known as anti-nutrients, which reduce the body's ability to absorb iron and zinc. So that doesn't sound too healthy. (laughs) Right. And then I read that this is found in the Impossible Burger. Well, you know, the Impossible Burger is, although it's plant-based and or vegan, it's a very highly processed mm-hmm. product. It's certainly not a whole food product. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I read about the isolate is that it causes a surge in insulin levels. So the Mastering Diabetes team recommended that people stay away from the isolate if possible. And again, I didn't even know what it looked like. How do you buy it? Where is it found? But I guess just read the labels and see if it says isolated soy protein. And then that's how you know. But I guess, I mean, does Impossible Burger have that in its list of ingredients? I don't know. No, I don't know either. I think the place that I've looked soy protein isolate is in milk, soy milk. And so you want to make sure that you're buying a soy milk that's pretty much as natural as possible and doesn't have the soy protein isolate in it as something that's being reconstituted or, you know, uh, other preservatives. Yeah. Okay, so I hope obviously the best thing to do is make your own. But then again, you know, how many of us have time to make our own? That's right. I hope that we explained a little bit about the isolated soy protein for people because I think that, okay, so we know that about isolated soy protein. This is probably the information that's fed to the general public who's fearing soy. They're thinking that this is the soy that we're eating. And what we're saying is no, go to, you know, your local natural grocery store and find the one that comes kind of sitting in its liquid. That's as close to whole as you can. But really, the edamame is the best way to consume. And, you know, I don't know if I ever told you, Dr. Riss, but there was a time when a friend of mine and I would go to this restaurant and we would ask for the edamame before people started adding spices and all of that. Mm -hmm. We did it first. (laughs) Many, many years ago, we were like, can you put some spice in that? Because we're Mexican and we like it. And I was eating edamame just like that. You know how you can eat one after the other, almost like chips, and they're enjoyable to eat. Or you can, you know, buy them already frozen or in bags and put them, sprinkle them in over your salad or in a soup or have the tempeh version, which you, Dr. Riss, enjoy. Yeah, I think I can out eat you with the spicy edamame. That's, you know, I don't think we ever pass up an opportunity to order edamame if it's on the menu. Right. It's a good appetizer and we enjoy eating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I certainly enjoy the spicy edamame. It's a good way too not to have the salty edamame, which, you know, has a lot of We try to avoid salt. That's right. Okay. Just a couple of other things as we're moving along is um, menopausal women. So is this good? So we've talked about like how young women, we know Asian women that consume soy, probably through miso soup and tofu and things like that, are protected throughout their lifetime. I know that you can't prevent you can't use the word prevent, but we definitely can reduce our risks. Yeah, you can't eliminate. Eliminate, yes. Yeah. So at a young age, I had another question. Can it help with menstrual cramps? That's, you know, for women that are in that age group. And then can it help with menopause, like reducing hot flashes? Yeah, so there's some studies out there that show that phytoestrogen exposure does decrease uh, the menopausal symptoms mm-hmm. in that particular much like estrogen does. Mm -hmm. So in this particular case, 
the phytoestrogens are activating pathways that reduce menopausal symptoms or discomfort. Okay. There's another study out there that shows that flaxseed is beneficial to women in menopause. And okay, so that's a good reason to talk about flaxseed because we brought it up earlier. And uh, so flaxseeds are considered, in my opinion, are a superfood. They are high in omega-3 fatty acids, which are extremely important to us in our health, but they also are high in lignans. Lignans are another phytonutrient, okay? And these lignans are converted in our intestinal tract into phytoestrogens. So flaxseeds themselves don't have phytoestrogens in them, but they have the precursors of phytoestrogens. And then the good bacteria in our gut, in our microbiome, then convert those lignans into phytoestrogens. Their potency is hundreds or thousands of times more than uh, many other foods. So that's why flaxseeds are kind of a superfood. And then these have Mm -hmm. beneficial effects. And my understanding is that they do decrease uh, menopausal symptoms. Uh, The other thing I've read about is uh, there's some studies that show that phytoestrogen exposure in plant foods decreases uh, fibroids uh, in women. Okay, so that's a a little known fact and not many people talk about it, but women with uh, higher soy exposure and phytoestrogen exposure experience less problems with painful fibroids throughout the course of their lifetime. That's great news. That's particularly interesting to me because I often get referred women with painful fibroids and I have to go in and what's called embolize Mm. the artery that leads to the to the fibroid in order to try to kill it. It's a less invasive non-surgical way to treat fibroids. And I will be very honest with you that I haven't sent these women away on a plant food diet, a plant-based diet, because it's been so few. uh, And uh, I think the reality is many of them won't adopt the therapy uh, when they want treatment for it. But there is data to show that Uh, there is decreased fibroids or decreased painful fibroids on a plant-based diet. Mm, This is such great news because, again, it feels like the power is back in our hands, that if we know these things, that we can help our health, you know, without relying on necessarily medication. Because, for example, you know, I don't like to take painkillers. And when I say painkillers, I'm talking about aspirin or Advil. I don't even like to take that. But most of my life, I struggled with painful cramps and acne. And I'm thinking the estrogen was probably the contributing factor to those things. I don't know what other kind of mechanism could have been in place, but I know that I never really had any kind of serious issues like fibroids or anything like that. But I transitioned to a whole food plant-based diet just before I started going into menopause. So it's a little hard to say how much improvement I've seen as a result, but I know that my acne cleared because you probably remember I suffered with acne um, for many, many years. And so if, if women can help themselves by having, for example, less painful menstrual cramps or fibroids, or even, I don't know if it helps with um, painful breasts, like if you have fibrocystic breasts, if it can help with, so it can help with that as well. I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't know the data on that. So again, since I'm so data driven, I won't comment uh, one way or the other. Although I do know that, you know, fibrocystic disease of the breast is a hormonally driven problem. Yeah. And it's often worse during, uh, you know, related to a woman's menstrual cycle. Yes. Oh my goodness. I wish I had known all of this many, many years ago, but I must have known something because I stopped eating red meat and pork a long, long time ago. Okay, just I want to make sure that we're not forgetting anything, but you mentioned flaxseed and I want to kind of throw this story out there to see if you remember. I had a, a doctor friend who lived in Austin and I won't say his name just out of privacy, but when I stayed with him, I 
prepared some foods and was teaching him how to eat healthier. And in during that time, I introduced him to flax seeds because my friend kind of was having some constipation issues. Mm-hmm. And me being the person, and this was many years ago, me being the person that likes to help people with the holistic approach, I prescribed him flax seeds. And I actually got him some cereal and flax seeds with to go along with that. Anyway, he was like, within one or two days, he was like, it's a miracle. It's amazing. This stuff works. This is wonderful. He was thanking me. And about a week later, he comes back and he says, my friends told me I'm going to grow man boobs. I, mm. I'm not going to take flaxseed <laughs> anymore. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is what misinformation does. The average person that doesn't read the literature, because most of us get our news from television, it's amazing or that- Or other friends like him. Or other friends. And then this was a doctor mm-hmm. who could have done the research on his own. And maybe even the literature- is biased also against flax seeds, just like maybe soy. I don't know. I'll be real honest with you. I have never seen any literature that says that consumption or even high consumption of flax seeds causes uh, feminization. I know. I've never seen that. So, and I think if that literature existed, people would be grasping onto that. I know. It's just so disappointing. But, you know, anything that we say, we can always say, hey, go to, you know, PCRM's website to obtain the studies related to this or American College of Lifestyle Medicine puts out a lot of literature as well or references that. So we'll always, if you want to know what studies we're referring to, we can give you that information. Maybe in the future, I can start placing that information on the website so that people know that we're just not making this stuff up. Okay, just a couple other things. I don't know if I'm forgetting anything else. There was some concern about thyroid and soy. And I was initially concerned as well because I have had hypothyroidism. But I think that if we have thyroid issues that, you know, people believe that maybe the tofu can interfere with our absorbing the iodine or something like that. So we're just encouraged to eat more nori sheets or something. So there are studies that have studied uh, thyroid function with increased soy intake, and they have shown that there is no negative impact on thyroid function from the consumption of soy. But there is one concern is that there is an iodine binding effect of soy that might reduce one's exposure. So in those situations, they do recommend that you just try to increase your iodine intake. Uh, And of course, we recommend doing that through uh, seaweed-based consumption, like nori sheets, for example. Awesome. Other health benefits can be associated in terms of consuming soy products is that they help to reduce inflammation and improve our cholesterol levels. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about cancer feeds on cholesterol. Yeah, I guess what are the other things I can think of right now? So let's talk about both soy and and flaxseed. Soy has been shown to reduce your cholesterol And it's also been shown to reduce your blood pressure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And these are in studies as well. Mm -hmm. And then also the cholesterol part of the soy consumption can likely be beneficial in cancers. Many cancers are uh, like cholesterol. They Mm -hmm. eat the cholesterol and they grow from cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you reduce your cholesterol, you can starve a cancer. And then uh, back to the lignans in flaxseed. Uh, Flaxseed has been shown to be a very potent blood pressure reducing a solution as well. Again, reducing your blood pressure by up to 
Mm-hmm. So somebody who has a blood pressure of 150 can get their blood pressure down to 135 just by eating a tablespoon or two of ground flaxseed on a daily basis. You don't have to take any medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just so just think about somebody with a blood pressure running 150 and you want to get your blood pressure down to 125. You make some lifestyle changes, start exercising a little bit, eat some flaxseed, do a few other things, which I could tell you. And you might not have to be on medications. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know? Uh, you can just reduce your blood pressure through lifestyle changes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I just I wish you guys would all go and buy the, oh, you know, some of these books that we reference as well, because that is so true. I told my listeners about how my cholesterol went up during the pandemic. I started 2020 healthy. My mom and I had been at Dr. Barnard's immersion program in D.C. We had our labs taken, our biometrics done right before the immersion program. And I was like, of course, my cholesterol is fine. Of course, I know this. I've never had a problem. And then during the pandemic, I the stress and just being fed up caused me to eat more processed foods, vegan processed. I never went back to eating animals and my cholesterol went up. And I was horrified, like I was so scared because I've never had a high cholesterol. And then I did a little challenge and started eliminating certain things and adding more greens. And even we learned about a supplement that has phytosterols. And if you want to talk about that to help reduce my cholesterol and it worked. Now I just have to make sure that I don't eat all that crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And I honestly don't even think you need the phytosterols. It's just that they show that the phytosterols compete with the binding sites and then therefore reduce your cholesterol absorption. And so, but I think that there's many just kind of standard things that you can do to reduce your cholesterol. And you did. And when we were measuring it regularly and, yes. and we just saw the cholesterol <laughs> just being focused, I call it, yeah. I call it being deliberate, just being deliberate in your choices, your food choices and your cholesterol dropped very quickly. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about having had you on the show again because it's been too long. I know that I wanted to get you on before earlier this year because I thought I wanted you as my guest for episode 200 Mm -hmm. to celebrate 200. Maybe you can come back when I celebrate 300. (laughs) We better start planning now. We better record it today for the next time. But the other thing, too, is that I just celebrated four years in the past year since I hired a team to help support me with a lot of the editing, I've put out a lot more content. And I was thinking, what do you think will happen in the next four years? Will I still be doing this? Will there be four more years of this? I don't know. I don't know either. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Stay tuned, everybody. (laughs) Stay tuned. But well, thank you, Dr. Riss, for joining us. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? And then I'm going to make sure that I add your Instagram account because Dr. Riss's Instagram account, which is Dr. Riss, it's at Dr. D-R underscore R-I-Z underscore B-U-K-H-A-R-I. Anyway, I'll include that in the show notes. So he's had a lot of activity in his Instagram account and you can go check out the account and see how he's been advocating for healthier options. We recently did a protest at a hospital in Fort Worth where we basically, you know, stood in there and this was part of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. We stayed, we were out there protesting the McDonald's, asking the hospital to do better for the patients. Because we know that when patients or anybody visits that hospital, the first thing that they'll see is the McDonald's. And when a hospital has a McDonald's there, it's almost like they're saying, hey, this is the kind of food we think you should eat. Yeah, we condone that. Yeah, Yeah. it was horrible. But lots of activity on your Instagram so people can learn about that. And you also have a guide, Dr. Rissa's Guide, 
to cardiovascular nutrition. Yes. So we're going to put a link. So if you're interested in learning more about Dr. Riz and his recommendations for lifestyle medicine that can help you all around, all the things that you can do to take care of your health, you can follow him or download the uh, PDF as well. But is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? I don't know if it's anything else, but just to kind of summarize, I'd like to talk about the big picture. And, you know, we're talking today a lot about soy uh, and breast cancer you know, kind of very some specifics. But what I like to tell people and help them understand is this lifestyle that we promote, you know, first off, kind of the the healthy lifestyle, which includes a plant-centric diet and avoiding toxic behaviors and getting sleep and developing relationships and working on your spirituality. And, you know, so those things, that's kind of a lifestyle we preach, but in particular, the whole food plant-based approach to life, to nutrition, which is very scientific and Mm evidence-based, is kind of a one solution fits all. Okay. You don't need to eat one particular diet for your heart, another particular diet for your breast, another particular diet for your prostate, another diet for your microbiome. What's very interesting to me, and it, for me, it kind of tells, okay, this kind of must have been the way it was intended to be because it's one diet that provides for a tremendous overall health for the body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I, I just like people to, to kind of grasp that concept. It's a whole food plant-based centric lifestyle is the healthiest way to approach your life. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Riz, because I know that when my listeners hear it directly from a vascular surgeon who treats advanced cases, you know, diseases that people pretty much brought on themselves by making lifestyle choices, certain lifestyle choices, I know that when they hear it from you, that they really get it. They can hear all day long from me, but I think it's important that they understand that the surgeon actually can is telling his own patients that these lifestyle modifications, the lifestyle medicine pillars work. They help in, like you said, in preventing disease and hopefully preventing recurrence or even the diseases from advancing, hopefully preventing that as well. So, Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, many times for my patients, it's very late in the process. And uh, the lifestyle they've been leading for decades has led to a point where they can't avoid being on my operating room table and mm-hmm. under my knife and, and the complications of that lifestyle when they're in their 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and 80s. But what I'm hoping is that many of you out there who are younger than that and listening to this mm-hmm. um, can adopt positive changes that can change the trajectory of your life and keep you from ever ending up on my table. And I think that's important. I will say, though, uh, it's well known and scientifically proven. Again, adopting a whole food plant-based lifestyle at any stage in your life results in a healthier life at any point. Yes. What I'm saying by that is it's never too late. Yes, absolutely. And I say all the time that, you know, I say this all the time. I want to drive the message that people do not want to end up as your patient because by then it's usually too late. Yeah. If people only knew before they were my patient that they didn't want to be my patient, they would do everything in the world to avoid being my patient. That's right. Okay. It's not unusual for me to ask a patient, if you knew how to prevent being where you are today, If somebody told you there was a way to stop, to not be here, if there's a change you could have made three decades or four decades ago, would you have done it? And they uniformly say yes. Okay. Now, the problem is once they've encountered the complications of that lifestyle, then they're like, they go back and say, yes, I would, I wish I would have changed. Mm -hmm. But what I want is for people to make that change before they encounter those complications. That's right. Wow. I am, for a long time, I was the only one that I knew of and it surprised the heck out of me. Because all of my colleagues who see what this lifestyle produces should say, 
okay, now I need to be plant-based and I need to teach that because look what that the other lifestyle teaches or becomes. But yeah, now I've heard of a couple of others. A couple have seen my social media, have reached out and contacted me. They're not terribly active in kind of the way we are, mm -hmm. but they've reached out and said, hey, look, oh, I'm plant-based too. I want to stay in touch. So I have. Yeah. Uh, so, but three across the country is still way too few. You need to create a WhatsApp group. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be a small group right now. Maybe we'll have a panel discussion, all three of you guys. That would be a lot of fun and talk about like what you see. But yeah, it's interesting when a doctor gets on board with the stuff, they don't always necessarily dive in right away because they have to learn all the information we had to learn too. And then maybe they'll do, you know, they'll give lectures and things like that. But this is pretty cool. I didn't know that. You know, I think one of the frustrations that I can give you the perspective as a physician is one of the perspectives that many physicians take. Mm -hmm. is that they don't think their patients will make the change. And I can understand, but uh, let me just say then, if I was the patient, mm -hmm. I would say, please at least give me the information. So don't share the information just because you don't think I'll listen. Yeah. So our goal or my goal is to, even if, you know, it's just to continuously present the information, the scientifically based evidence-based mm -hmm. medicine information to my patients, and hopefully it'll plant a seed mm -hmm. and they'll make a change. Do you remember when I, and I've shared this too, but do you remember when we stayed in someone's house in California as part of that couch surfing program and they have to approve, it's an organization that allows you to stay free of charge at other people's homes and everyone has to be verified and, you know, it's a legit thing, but we haven't done it in many years and we used to host people here in Dallas and then we finally decided, hey, let's see what it's like to be hosted. And so we applied to stay with this one couple and they said, yes, everything's fine. We'd love to have you. But however, we do not eat animal products. Please do not cook those in our home. And then we stayed with them, got to know them. It was great. But they never once told us that they were vegan. Mm -hmm. plant-based. And that was years before you and I got on board. And I often reflect on that because if they had just sat down and talked to us, like if they had spoken to us about the health benefits or whatever they wanted to share, then that seed would have been planted, but they didn't share it. And I don't want to miss those opportunities when I'm interacting with other people that I could help save someone's life or that I can help improve someone's quality of life just by sharing them, sharing the information when they're willing to listen, you know, not forcing it. But yeah, that's what I think. I don't ever want to be in that position where I fail to share the information out of fear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're going to continue the discussion during dinner because <laughs> <laughs> we are getting ready to cook. Dr. Riss, thank you once again for coming on the show. I can't wait to see what the listeners say about this episode and hopefully we'll catch you in the near future again. Okay. Thank you. See you on number 300. Dr. Riz Wambukari is a vascular surgeon with over 25 years of experience. He's highly specialized in the surgical treatment of blood vessel disorders and the minimally invasive treatment of blood vessel disorders. Dr. Riz treats acute injuries to arteries and atherosclerosis-related chronic illnesses. Dr. Bukhari is passionate about saving limbs and preventing amputations in his patients. He often says that you should do everything in your power to not end up like his patients. Many of his patients lose their quality of life once they have advanced diseases. He still advises his patients to adopt healthy lifestyle changes, such as those associated with the pillars of lifestyle medicine. He is also a strong advocate for using nutrition to treat various diseases and to reduce cancer and chronic disease risk factors. Today's topic, soy, is controversial, and Dr. Bukhari debunks some of its common myths. 
Here are a few things to remember regarding soy and estrogen levels. First, soy contains phytoestrogens, which are plant-based estrogens. These estrogens are much weaker than the estrogens produced by the body and can help block the body's estrogen and can help block the body's estrogen from binding to receptors. Second, soy can be beneficial for women throughout their lives. Studies show that consuming soy early in life can significantly reduce a woman's risk of breast cancer. Soy can help alleviate some symptoms associated with menopause, such as hot flashes and night sweats. Third, Dr. Bukhari recommends soy as a healthy part of a plant-based diet. Soy can reduce the risk of many chronic diseases, including heart disease, stroke, and cancer. Soy products can help to lower cholesterol and protect against heart disease. Always consume minimally processed soy products, such as organic tofu, edamame, and tempeh. They are a great source of protein and can be a healthy alternative to meat. Also, I'm going to put a link down below if you'd like to learn more about how you can prevent cardiovascular disease. Dr. Rizwan Bukhari also has a guide that you might be interested in. So make sure that you click on that link below. I'd love to hear about your experience with soy. Have you reduced your hot flashes by consuming soy? Tell us about a favorite meal that incorporates soy food. You can now leave me a voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash HLS. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for being a listener. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to spread our message. Thanks for listening.